From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. So, Michael, I've visited different parts of Africa a number of times for holidays and for work, and I've loved every trip and found it fascinating. But I honestly don't feel I'm that well informed. What about you? I mean, how much do you feel that you know about Africa? Well, definitely not enough for sure. I guess I've learned a thing or two about a country or another, but I can't say I understand all the details and dynamics. After all, it's a huge continent with enormous diversity. Yes, indeed. Well, our guest today is not only a leading African economist, but also an African who has first-hand experience of the continent's turbulent history. And that history still exerts its influence today. He's a realist, but he's also an optimist. I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. So welcome to our podcast, Carlos. Thank you, Janet. It's a pleasure. You were born in a small village in northwestern Guinea-Bissau, but have very much worked on an international stage. And it is an extraordinary journey, and I'd love you to tell us about it. Well, in fact, uh, sometimes uh, difficulties turn into opportunities, the DRSA. And in fact, uh, the fact that I was in a country without university at the time created the opportunities for me to start working before having the possibility of graduating from any university and eventually going to study abroad. I end up in Geneva thanks to a network of contacts and uh, very uh, lucky opportunities. And uh, in Geneva, obviously, uh, the familiarity with the United Nations is pretty clear. So I started uh, trying to see whether I could uh, increase my income by doing some freelancing with the Swiss Radio International that allowed me access to the United Nations. I was going there for interviews and tried to get uh, as much uh, opportunities to uh, infiltrate the system as possible. And, and, and that sort of touched my life. Uh, later, uh, I joined research, but from research, I always had an eye on international issues, interest on the United Nations developments, and eventually I end up at the United Nations. First as a development economist uh, in their development program, and then later in different capacities, including working for Secretary General Kofi Annan, which was the highlight of my career because of the learning that was associated with it. And then when I left the UN uh, after 28 years of uh, many managerial responsibilities, I returned to academia and from academia continued to be quite involved in global issues joining various global commissions, helping the African Union, and also making sure that through uh, participation in different boards of foundations and think tanks, I continue to be active in this field of uh, development, which now more and more is also the field of uh, the intersection between development and climate. We'll talk about climate um, later, of course. But um, I just wanted to go back to your childhood because you met a man called Mario de Andrade. And it's a fascinating connection and it speaks to a very turbulent time in your country. Could you tell us a bit about him and the times that you were a child in? 
So we are talking about the 70s of uh, last century when the Portuguese former colonies, I come from Guinea-Bissau, one of them, were uh, attaining independence after a very long fight and the downfall of the fascist regime in Portugal. So in Guinea-Bissau, uh, everybody was very excited and busy with the post-independence first days. I was a very active uh, youth leader at the time and was very interested in culture, very interested in everything that had to do with sort of intellectual challenge. So some people made sure that I would meet Mario de Andrade before actually being uh, uh, in Guinea-Bissau. He went through a number of very important functions. He was one of the organizers of the first uh, Black and African Writers' Congresses. He was uh, in charge of the first uh, journal published in Paris dedicated to African literature. He was also um, out of Al Algiers in charge of uh, coordinating movements that were fighting colonialism at the time. And he had all the names, the big names of the time, from Jean-Paul Sartre to Che Guevara in his list of contacts. But unfortunately uh, for him, uh, this uh, very open spirit of freedom did not go well with his own party. So he was eventually expelled from it and end up in Guinea-Bissau. And it was uh, because of this uh, coincidence that I end up also having uh, the opportunity to meet him first and then to work for him. And it was my real university because this uh, man was not only full of uh, uh, knowledge, expertise about the Africa of the times, but he was also one of the leaders of the Pan-African movement. So he was, by the way, the one that managed to get me a fellowship to go study in Geneva. So it was really uh, an absolute uh, pleasure to have this uh, luck in my life of meeting someone that was uh, greater than life, but also someone that was so well connected that one could actually uh, take off from Guinea-Bissau's small dimension into a global stage. It really is an extraordinary sort of happenstance that uh, you got to know him. But I mean, it seems to me that therefore your interest in multilateralism and indeed Pan-Africanism was sort of birthed at that time. T tell us how that has sort of shaped your thinking. Well, Amilcar Cabral was uh, at the time considered one of the most important thought leaders of the continent, and he was in charge of uh, a number of very important Pan-African responsibilities. And uh, Mario Dandrade was the biographer of Amilcar Cabral. By the time I met him, Amilcar Cabral was already dead. But as a biographer, he was the one who introduced me to his, uh, to his thinking and immediately immersed me into the Pan-African movement, how it was born in the diaspora, because the diaspora didn't have a very specific territorial claim. But uh, the continent, they could not identify themselves with the more straight jacket nationalist ideas that some of the leaders had at the time and were 
more interested in the broader continental size as their identifier. And that's how Pan-Africanism was born. And the organization of African unity only came to be um, in 1963 after the different uh, interpretations of what should be the nationalist movement in Africa took shape. And this competition was sort of mediated by the emperor of Ethiopia, using the symbolism that Ethiopia was the only African country not colonized, he managed to get the different groups together. And eventually that was uh, the beginning of uh, a journey where Pan-Africanism was enshrined in an institutional setup called the Organization of African Union, today African Union. Fascinating. Well, I, I, I want to talk about economics. And it strikes me that Africa has so much to offer uh, in an aging world, a young and growing population, many large companies, some amazing entrepreneurs, land and resources. But there have been so many false dawns. So 13 years ago, as you know, the McKinsey Global Institute wrote about Africa and the promise and the opportunity. 2010 decade, the growth accelerated across most of Africa, but then growth retreated in 2010 to 19. Why? Well, I like to joke that Lions on the Move, which was the title of the McKinsey report, was so important and disruptive in terms of you know, challenging the current and, and at the time thinking about Africa, that it, it really turned uh, the Afro-pessimist uh, attitude towards uh, maybe too much Afro-optimism. We have from 2010 the beginnings of another wave of um, crisis in the continent because Africa always suffers slightly later the impacts that each of the global crises brings. The 2008-2009 crisis, financial crisis at the time, had its repercussions in demand, disacceleration of certain economies, and because we are commodity dependent, our commodities became less uh, attractive in different respects in terms of uh, our exports, but also prices. And therefore, in 2010, we started really to feel the heat of the, of the financial crisis. The same has happened now with the pandemic. During the pandemic, people were quite surprised with the African resilience. It did not suffer as much as other regions from a sanitary and economic point of view, but it suffered much more later, about one or two years later. So it's always a bit the trend. And I think uh, what we are now much more conscious is that Africa has to deal with three dimensions of its uh, sort of development trajectory that are very difficult to master, despite uh, doing the right things. One is the large commodity dependence that keeps uh, us from industrializing and making sure that we integrate value chains and uh, you know all the requirements of productivity in a much more meaningful way. Unless Africa really puts to rest this commodity dependence that comes from a colonial model, it's going to be very hard to make uh, transformation. Second is the fact that we don't really have historically examples of economies that have grown since the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century 
without access to credit and liquidity. And Africa has huge difficulties to access the levels of investment and capital that are needed to make transformation possible. So we are always sort of in the above the water situation, not with enough credit to make the economy really grow. And obviously this is half the responsibility of the Africans themselves because they don't have the savings culture and also have not developed the institutions that would allow for capital markets to thrive. But it's also the consequence of the international financial architecture that is making it very prohibitive for late entrants to really make a dent. And then the third characteristic that really makes Africa suffer more than it should, uh, not linked necessarily uh, to its uh, own making, is the fact that it is always a terrain for uh, geopolitical football games. You have now uh, middle powers trying to influence different jihadist movements, terrorist activities are very much funded from abroad. You have, of course, the internal domestic problems that are a very good fertile ground for this to to, to grow. But, uh, you know, the majority of this uh, developments are actually attributable to uh, interference of uh, outside powers. Africa is always at rain for proxies. Uh, it was so during the Cold War. It continues to be today with jihadist movements. And God knows, but maybe in the future, it's going to be also um, the terrain for another Cold War if the tensions between the West and China with you know what is happening with the war in Ukraine are uh, uh, an indicator of times to come. So I, I think that uh, the report underestimated some of these global exogenous dimensions that Africa really does not control and are not necessarily linked with its performance. And if you look at endogenous factors that might be holding Africa back, what would you say your top three be? Well, obviously, everybody will focus first on governance, and there is no doubt that African politics has been influenced by a number of factors that are very peculiar to the region. After the colonial administration was replaced by independent states, they continue, in most cases, to treat the population as subjects rather than citizens. So politics has evolved around basically creating a space for the elites that uh, have more rights than the rest. And the rest, you know, basically are just treated as uh, subjects. And and this, uh, of course, creates uh, a very bizarre interpretation of uh, the democratic dispensation. Because what we end up is having symbolic developments uh, in the political institutional settings that do not correspond to the informal politics. Uh, we, we talk a lot about uh, informal economy in Africa, but in fact, the informal economy and the informal politics go together. Uh, if you have uh, one large portion of your population that doesn't even have IDs or birth certificates, basically civil registration, it's a very interesting indicator that you really are not treating them as subjects. Because if you don't formalize 
the relationship between people and the state to the point that I think the figure right now is 40% of the African population not having civil registration, it tells you that they are being treated as subjects, not really participating fully. The second factor that I think uh, people normally point is uh, one that I already mentioned, but maybe I will go deeper. Commodity dependence is, is really the result of a lack of ambition. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, we have an elite that is rent-seeking in terms of its behavior and therefore is content if they identify the, the wealth of a country with one specific commodity earnings. I have oil, therefore we are rich. I have diamonds, therefore we are rich. And of course, what this turns out to be is basically, you know, uh, having having uh, uh, resources that are not the result of real transformation and gains of productivity and making sure that the economy is, is growing with quality. So you can have uh, growth, but, uh, you know, it does not really translate into real structural transformation of the economies. So I think those are the two big uh, reasons why we are lacking in progress and we continue to look into other regions with a certain degree of jealousy because they have been able to master phenomena such as the one I just described. Do you see signs of change? I mean, I remember many years ago when I was a journalist watching Cyril Ramaphosa speak at the World Bank. This was well before he was elevated uh, in politics. And he said, look, we don't want aid. We want a level playing field. We want investment. We don't want subsidies. We have everything in Africa. We have amazing entrepreneurs. But do you see that vibrancy and that entrepreneurism in action? And is it beginning to change despite the sort of headwinds that you've talked about? I think uh, it's very clear that we have now a group of countries that are really reformists and are doing the right things. If you look into the various uh, sets of indicators, business attractivity, uh, investment promotion and attractivity, uh, reforms in the structure of the economy, increase efficiency in tax collection. So you can go on after one after another. You will see that there is, there is now a group of countries that are really doing the right things. And of course, we have examples that have been shining for quite some time. But, uh, you know, normally it's small countries. So we, we, we tend to discount them, you know, countries like Botswana or Mauritius and the like. So we, we don't give them as much credit as they deserve because, in fact, they, they, they have the absolute influence in the debate because they have succeeded. So they are quoted, they are mentioned. So people are curious about what has gone right there and they, they want to learn. But unfortunately, uh, the, larger, the, the largest economies in the continent are uh, dragging us down. If you, if you take countries like uh, Nigeria, Egypt, South Africa, they have been growing very slowly. South Africa has everything to you know, really propel the continent in terms of productivity gains, expanding the efficiency of uh, service provision, and certainly as the quality resources for a very vibrant uh, tertiary sector. 
Egypt is certainly a country that has not allowed its private sector to, to grow as much as it should, continues to be under the grip of military establishment, and that creates a bit of a problem. And it's not really a, a promoter of uh, uh, regional integration. It has become a bit more so on the last, uh, over the last uh, four or five years, but it, it's quite recent. And Nigeria, it's really different countries in one. You have the southeast part of the country that is growing in a steadfast pace and certainly very modernized in relation to the rest. And then you have parts of the country that basically live of the subsidies of the oil exports and have not really taken care of the rest of the economy. So one way of looking into all these difficulties in, in, in a sort of a pattern is, is to demonstrate that countries have, for the moment, not done enough in terms of industrializing. And, and it's not because the possibilities are not there. It is true that parts of the world have experienced premature de-industrialization. And it is true that automation, robotization, machine learning is going to change completely the rules of the game, including now, you know, even more so with artificial intelligence. But it is also true that Africa can count a lot on its own very large domestic continent, continental market. And for certain value chains, the competition uh, would allow entrants like uh, latecomers. And Africa is not taking full advantage of it. But I see that some countries now are very much versed into what needs to be done and they are progressing well. It is interesting. I believe that our latest research says that Africa trades much more with the rest of the world than it does with its neighbours. So only 10% of imports come from another African country and only 17% of exports are going somewhere in Africa. And that's a huge wasted opportunity. What can be done about it? Well, of course, uh, what can and should be done about it is to put in place... um, the regional integration treaties that have been adopted since the 90s, uh, the so-called Abuja Treaty, that envisioned, amongst other things, the establishment of the African continental free trade area. Now, uh, this African continental free trade area should be perceived as a building block of a larger ambition. But it is one that really comes at the right time, I would say, because there are tendencies now to unravel trade rules. There will be much more pressure for trade to be associated with uh, climate action. Therefore, you know, a lot of new modalities and new forms of protectionism uh, may emerge. So Africa really comes with its uh, sort of free trade ambition at this very time where things are changing and therefore it can really carve for itself much more independence if it does the right things and also uh, can make its market very attractive because it's going to be a very large one, surpassing in number of people, consumers, therefore, the likes of uh, China and India. And for those who have some hesitation about uh, these prospects, I like to remind just one aspect that I think is pretty telling, is that the more tech-intensive products and processes will become, 
the more they will be appealing to the younger population, not to the older generation. And that basically means that, you know, this consumer market cannot be uh, underestimated. And those who will underestimate it will pay a very high price because that's where the youthness will be focused and concentrated in the creativity that is associated with youthness. On that point on technology, I mean, you've raised the issue of AI, which everybody around the world is suddenly waking up to, at least I am, and worrying about, (laughs) as well as seeing an opportunity. Where is Africa now in terms of the technological frontier, in terms of adoption? And is AI an opportunity or a threat for Africa? We have very interesting examples of uh, Africa being a a very interesting, uh, I'm choosing my words, player in technology, but we don't have scale. I'm going to just mention a few examples. Everybody talks about M-Pesa and the mobile payments uh, platform that then, you know, catapulted Africa into becoming the largest uh, such user of mobile banking. We can also mention uh, the fact that agriculture in Africa is now benefiting more and more from uh, the access that technology allows to to basically share the opportunities and a sharing economy. You also have in Gabon the first industrial park that is certified with the highest environmental standards. And it's, it's an industrial park dealing with wood. So it's, it's a very interesting example. Or you can mention the fact that you have in the city where I live, Cape Town, a corporation like NASPERS that is the largest investor of Tencent, which is uh, the largest uh, tech company in China and has uh, investments in about 30 countries and most of them actually in the area of e-learning, where they have become basically the largest investor and have an arm in the stock exchange of Amsterdam that is one of the largest investors on tech in the world. So uh, all of this is happening in Africa. And uh, it's it's happening because the opportunities exist, although they are sort of scattered and not dense. They indicate that it's not a desert and um, the, the opportunities uh, can be tapped based, uh, I already mentioned it, in the youthness of the continent. And all studies point to the direction that you know creativity is going to become much more important with artificial intelligence taking over a lot of more mundane responsibilities and becoming more and more learned, uh, active. And I think we are going to see a world where the possibilities of uh, digital migrants and other employment and work transformations are, are, are going to offer opportunities to the continent. It sounds like you have some optimism about how Africa can leverage its young and growing population then. I'm very much against the sort of Malthusian interpretation of population uh, growth becoming a major disaster, particularly because people uh, like to uh, talk about uh, the the demographic dividend 
depending on investments on human capital. There's nothing wrong with the, with the principle. But what people really uh, forget is that the globalization of knowledge that is allowed for the new, by the new technologies is going to create opportunities for learning that are unconventional and do not depend just on formal learning institutions. And, and you know, the, the youth is already demonstrating that. They absorb probably uh, much more in Africa certain types of uh, knowledge than are imparted by the institutions because they have smartphones or because they have laptops. The moment they have bandwidth, they just uh, take off. The bandwidth uh, increases in Africa are quite significant. Uh, we are late in relation to others, but, you know, catching up very quickly. We can't close without talking about climate change. Obviously, Africa is heavily exposed, but then we also say in our research that there's a large opportunity. So it talks about eight manufacturing opportunities that could generate potentially up to two billion in revenue a year and 700,000 jobs. Things like off-grid and micro-grid solar systems and electric two-wheelers. We talked about the the lack of manufacturing capacity. Is that realistic, do you think? Climate is a problem for Africa, but also an amazing opportunity. It's a problem because we suffer more than the rest. We are already with temperatures that are way above the average that uh, the world is seeking. We have suffered more from the impacts of climate change than any other region in the planet, and we have contributed the least. And if we take South Africa out of the um, indicators that are attributed to the continent in relation to emissions, we contribute about 1,5% of the emissions in the world. It's with South Africa that we double that because they have a very high dependence on coal and are one of the major polluters of the planet. The conversion into renewables in Africa should be an obvious choice because we have the largest potential also, not only in solar, hydro, but also in green hydrogen. So I would say, um, based on the International Energy Agency, that the world cannot really solve its energy transition without Africa. The question is to know whether Africa is going to have another wave of commodity dependence this time around, you know, attributed to uh, strategic minerals and the exports of energy of a new type, or are we going to use this as a unique window to actually uh, industrialize and make uh, the potential that uh, the McKinsey report has identified possible? And for me, the difference is going to be uh, whether Africa continues to deal with the international negotiations on the international financial architecture as a continent and a group of countries that is seeking development aid, now relabeled climate finance, or is it going to really create an opportunity for more agency in terms of you know, changing the rules of engagement that continue to make investments on renewables and other types of uh, transformation uh, in need of de-risking. 
So the terminology here is very telling. If you need to de-risk, it means that the business as usual is the other type of business, which is the fossil fuel-centered one. So it's for Africa really to put this up front and negotiate differently. And, and that is not going to be possible unless the, the continent really presents itself unified. And the litmus tests of whether we are ready is uh, the implementation of the continental free trade area. If we fail its implementation or we continue to go sideways and some countries going and negotiating bilateral deals, undermining the collective, then, you know, it's another very interesting demonstration of Africa's failure. Uh, a recent example of what I'm mentioning is the fact that you have uh, a carbon tax mechanism that has been implemented by Europe, the European Union, the Cabo border adjustment mechanism, and Africans have failed to actually unify a position and, and defy it because they are going to suffer from that tax and they are going to uh, basically now have to live with it because it has been passed through law. And unless we challenge through WTO, which seems difficult but not impossible, it's going to be uh, very uh, difficult to reverse. So it is this type of attitudes that we expect Africans to uh, demonstrate a real change. And uh, unless that happens, well, we'll have a continuation of the latecomer status. Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic at the moment on that front? I like to say that uh, I'm realistic. So uh, because I help a lot of countries and the African Union negotiate, um, I never give up. You know, I continue to punch and to try to see whether there is awakening. There is some response here and there. Like, for instance, this is a crucial year. We are going to have between now and COP28 in November, a number of summits that are going to debate on reforms, both in Bretton Woods, international financial architecture, and the World Trade Organization. So it's very important for the Africans to use 2023 as a launching pad of a new attitude. So let's not uh, give up before uh, the year closes. <laughs> it always strikes me that people have a lot of misconceptions or preconceptions about Africa. What do you think is the biggest preconception or misconception that you come across? You know, I, I like to teach uh, about misperceptions. And, and normally I, I, I try to identify the origins of the current misperceptions to Eagle as a philosopher attributing history to the written word. And, you know, basically saying that in Africa, we don't have the written word. Therefore, Africans' uh, history started with the arrival of um, sort of the, the foreign powers. There's so much wrong with that interpretation. First, because the written word, if you go all the way to its uh, most remote origins, is the, are the hieroglyphs from Egypt which obviously come from Africa, all the way to uh, the fact that history really cannot be simplified as starting with, uh, with the written word, because obviously history is our social developments and, and movements of a political and other nature that precede the written word in many parts of the, of the globe. But, you know, it, it is really a, 
a very interesting uh, way of saying the European Renaissance created an interpretation of Africa that still is the mainstream view. I say mainstream because, you see, uh, I like to call it the uh, Mercator uh, syndrome because the Mercator projection uh, gave us a planisphere, it gave us a, a world map that diminishes Africa significantly and, you know, that's the same size as Groenland, although it is 14 times bigger. And that image is very much uh, representative, symbolically, of the diminishing Africa. And of course, what strikes me is that Google Maps still uses it. So that means it's no longer a problem of knowledge, it's a problem of comfort. Interesting. So listen, I just want to close on a couple of very quick questions. What would you have done or would have liked to have done if you hadn't become an economist? Well, when I was a young man, I, I wanted to be a DJ. And then, you know, I wanted to be a photographer. And, and then I wanted to be a writer when I met Marit Andrad. So all of those things really didn't happen. But, you know, it created this uh, very close interest to everything that is artistic and cultural that continues to, to these days. <laughs> How plugged in are you to the sort of dynamic culture of Africa's youth? Oh, very much so. I'm a fan of Afrobeats. I'm uh, very much involved in a project that is called Africa No Filter, which is about changing the narratives uh, by young people. Uh, I'm a collector of paintings uh, from young artists. Yes, very much. Yes, it's so it's such a vibrant scene. Finally, what one piece of advice would you give to listeners of this podcast? I like something that I learned with Kofi Annan when I was working with him that said many times when I was frustrated with developments that were uh, taking place uh, without attribution to him, that the ultimate proof of success was when others claim the, uh, your ideas as theirs. And, you know, I think that's the real influencer. And I think uh, that, that's the way to go to make things really happen. No claim of attribution, no claim of visibility, but uh, a real interest in transformation. Well, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you, Janet. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.